You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Great War episode 181. If you are listening to this on the day of its release, it should be November 11th, 2018, the centenary of the armistice that went into effect on November 11th, 1918 at 11am. In honor of this day and what it represents around the world, I include here a playing of the last post and a moment of silence.
Today we will have something of a special episode, because I once again have a list of listener questions here in front of me. I think with this episode I'm finishing up the questions that I have, so if you have other questions to ask, send them in. If I get another good list over the next few months, you can expect another Q&A episode after our Versailles episodes. I would also like to thank everyone who sent in questions for this episode. There are a lot of longtime listeners and supporters of the show in this list, and thank you for supporting the show for all these years. It means the world to me. To get back into the QA groove, I'm starting off with an easy one. Our first question today comes from listener Peter. Are there games you recommend regarding World War I? They can be a great way to learn. Two I recommend are Paths of Glory and a recent great Western Front-focused game, Fields of Despair. So, I really like games, both of the video and board game variety, but I don't actually end up playing as many around World War I as you might expect. From a board game perspective, the issue ends up being that my board gaming group generally is not interested in playing the types of games that strategy games and World War I games like Paths of Glory or Field of Despair are. So in lieu of a recommendation or discussion about World War I board games, I'm just going to highly recommend an episode of the Three Moves Ahead podcast, episode 441, where hosts Rob Zachney and Bruce Garrick have a really good discussion about World War I board games and how they succeed and fail at translating the events of history into board game form. They also both know their history really well, so you might learn something from the episode as well. From a video game perspective, there are not as many options as I would like. I quite enjoy the time I spent with To End All Wars, which is a turn-based strategy game that ends up playing a lot like a board game would. Other than that, a lot of my video game time I use to relax. So I try not, and if I put on a World War I game, I end up thinking too much, so I don't end up playing that many of them. Our next question comes from listener Owen. So apart from the assassination that started the war, was there any one event on the battlefield that could change the course of the war? As is the case with most alternative history discussions, there are an endless variety of actions that you can point to that would drastically change the course of the war. For example, if the German plan at the beginning of the war had really worked, and I don't mean just getting to Paris, but surrounding the entire French army in eastern France, or if the French attacks at the beginning of the war had been incredibly successful and they marched deep into Germany, or the Italian attacks in 1915 break through on the Isonzo and march on Vienna. All of these would certainly have changed the course of the war, but when you start digging into how, then you just end up taking the story off the map and in the realm of counterfactuals, which I've decided to mostly stay away from. I will answer your question like this, though. I don't think there is a plausible scenario that allows the war to be something drastically different than it was after it started. In history, it was a long, drawn-out, incredibly costly conflict that required the near destruction of most of the participants before it was over. I think that framework stays the same, regardless of what happens around individual operations or battles. Our next question comes from listener Nathan. Why were the Dominion troops and commanders, especially Monash and Curie, the best on the Entente side? So to answer this question, I want to start off by saying, I think many of the Dominion commanders were good, and they were commanding good troops. But I think that the reasons for this can be hard to exactly nail down. It was one of those questions without an ironclad answer, and so we have to talk about theories and beliefs, and not numbers and facts. And because of this, I'm going to give you my opinion. 
but I want to make it very clear that this is an opinion about why the relative quality of the Dominion commanders seems to be outside the sort of the normal range of skill of Western Front commanders. The two reasons that I believe this is the case are one, that the Dominion military formations were given a good amount of autonomy, but this happened relatively late in the war. And two, they were mostly built up from the very small armies when the war started. The first reason basically comes down to the British allowing the Dominions to raise their own troops and place them in their own units and give, their com give them commanders from their home country. This meant that most of the Canadian units would end up being commanded by Canadians. And as the war progressed and the Dominion troops were grouped into larger and larger formations, those commanders would be drawn from those same units. This then ties into the second reason, because they had to expand so greatly they were forced to come up and continue to expand with a group of officers, and to promote that group as the war progressed. This meant that you see many officers coming into the fore with either no previous military experience or very little, and they were generally promoted due to merit instead of pre-war service length or connections. This, when combined with the autonomy and the slow growth from brigades to divisions to corps to armies, allowed the officer corps the ability to grow and mature in a relatively natural way. The controlled expansion of these forces was important, as opposed to the British army where it was a force to massively expand almost overnight, with the new armies greatly straining the ability of the British army to handle so many men. For example, the Canadian that you mentioned, General Curie, who is always in this conversation about Dominion commanders, would command a brigade for a year and then a division for a full two years before being put in command of the Canadian Corps at the end of the war. If you look on the British side, you see officers who sort of rocket up through the ranks a lot faster because they had to, because so many more enlisted men were being brought in, first from volunteers and then from the draft. So the last piece that I mentioned earlier was that they had this autonomy, but they didn't necessarily have a lot of control over things until relatively late in the war. And I think this is important because I don't actually think the commanders of these Dominion armies were necessarily head and shoulders above their British counterparts in terms of raw skill or theory. I think the biggest reason that they get this reputation is because they were not thrust into positions where they were commanding operations until later in the war. You generally don't hear much about the Dominion commanders like Curie or Monash before at least 1917, and it wasn't really until 1918 that they became center to the story. By this time, the British had spent several years completely failing to accomplish their goals and destroying the reputation of many a general, and the Dominion commanders, along with the British leaders, learned from this. By the time that the Dominion troops occupy center stage in 1918, they occupy the position far more due to the men... Uh, making up their units than their commanders, who were good, but I don't think they really outclassed the British commanders they were fighting alongside in 1918. But when we look back through history, their sort of position it seems to be much higher because the reputation was not beaten down by three years of failures. Also, there were war heroes in countries like the Dominions that were looking for war heroes, and they, that's just what they had. Nathan had another question, also about Dominions. So how important was the Dominion contribution, and how did each change because of the war? 
I'm going to reserve the right to not answer the second part of that question at this moment because I'm already planning on an entire episode based around answering the question, not just for the British dominions, but how the war changed a bunch of countries around the world. Uh, not the huge belligerents in Europe, not the United States, but a bunch of smaller ones that joined in the war at some point. As a small preview, I will say that some of the things that I found surprised me, like how much the war helped to jumpstart domestic aviation in places like Australia and New Zealand due to the number of trained and experienced pilots that returned from the war. As for the first part of the question about Dominion contributions, I will combine the answer with a question from a listener, Theo, who says, my question pertains to the effect of the colonies had on the outcome of the war. Being South African myself, it seems that mostly the narrative in the world wars goes with the British did this and France did that. Whereas although the colony soldiers feature a bit, it seems to be almost more of a side note. So I guess my question is, if Britain and France did not possess their huge colonies, would the outcome have been any different? Did the colonies and their men constitute a critical mass, or not really? Also, did Germany's colonies send any men to fight in Europe? Okay, so there's a lot of questions here, but to answer just the top-line question that both Nathan and Theo seem to have. Do I think the men from around the world that helped the British were the reason that the Allies won? And my answer is no. Probably not. But without their contribution to the war, the conflict would look very different. But maybe in ways you would not expect. The biggest place that I think the war does not drastically change is actually on the Western Front. It would have still remained the primary front. I think the British might be forced to introduce conscription earlier, and there might be fewer Entente troops in total on the front. But I think it still looks a lot like the Western Front we know from history. However, everywhere else that the British Empire fought would have drastically changed. The four-year-long fight in German East Africa was almost entirely fought by South African, Indian, and other African troops. The fighting in the Middle East was mostly done by Indian troops, with the assistance of other Dominion units along the way. Both of these probably cannot exist without the help of the Dominion troops. There was just not enough British troops to go around. The Middle Eastern theater probably could not have existed at all. It's also an important diversion of resources that kept the Ottoman Empire from attacking Russia through the Caucasus and assisting in the Balkans. That is just really one example. There will also certainly be many more. So to summarize, did they win the war for the Entente? Probably not. But boy, they were helpful. Also, as far as I know, no troops from Germany's colonies were used in Europe, at least not in any large number. The only colony that survived past the first year of the war was German East Africa, and they were already heavily outnumbered when trying to fight off the invading British. Our next question comes from listener Daniel, who continues questions about the British Dominions, this time about Canada. He asks about the French Canadians in Canada, and why they didn't seem to really support the war very much. So from what I've read about this, and I've dug into conscription quite a bit recently for some future episodes, the biggest reason that there was not much support for the war in French-Canadian areas of Canada is simply because they saw themselves as Canadians, not as French people living in Canada. This sentiment is not very far removed from many other places around the globe, like the United States, 
that saw a lot of European immigrants in the decades before the war. In many cases, those people no longer identified with countries that they came from. Some left specifically because they did not want to be there anymore, and they certainly would not pass on to their children any affinity for their home country. This would be a large contributing factor for the low volunteer numbers in Quebec, and then when conscription was introduced, the active resistance against its implementation in the area. Our next question comes from listener Craig, who says, An interesting quirk of the Australian involvement was that all of the troops were volunteers. There were two referenda on conscription, both of which failed, much to the dismay of the then government, and the debate over the referenda split the country in some sense. As a result, it appears that there was a policy decision not to execute Australian soldiers convicted of offenses carried out that, that carried the death penalty. Are you able to address the attitude to carrying out the death penalty of the various combatant nations, in particular in light of the various mutinies? So, Craig, the interesting fact about Australia is quite interesting. It was the only country to put conscription to a direct referendum, and it failed not once but twice. Other countries had elections that functioned as a vote on conscription due to the views of the parties involved, but there were no other direct votes on it. I, th I thought that was pretty interesting. Anyway, on to the real question. The death penalty was always an available punishment in all of the armies involved in the war. The old penalty for treason is death type of thing. There were many times when it was used, be it for desertion, dereliction of duty, uh, during the French mutinies, or on the Italian front when Condorna wanted to send a message. There was in general some hesitancy to carry out the execution of soldiers in the numbers that regulations required, though. So, for example, during the French mutinies, there were initially far more men scheduled for execution than would eventually be executed. The same thing would happen in the British army when it came to desertion. Exactly why this is the case and why, in many cases, the solution to wide-scale discontent in the armies was often to give in to demands instead of crack down on them harder was, is sort of a very, very large topic. It becomes so large because it gets into topics that seem far afield from military discipline and instead branches out to conversations about societal expectations and the changes within the societies of Europe. In all the countries in Europe, there was a general expectation that people should have a say in their government, and some freedom to do what they wanted with their lives. Obviously, for men going into the armies during the war, there were different expectations, but the militaries were still forced to live within a country that had that framework, and the expectations for those armies changed throughout the war, as the composition of the armies changed. Throughout the war, all the armies slowly became older, filled with more married men with children and jobs. And because of this, it became harder for the armies to rule them with sort of an iron fist. Also, by the time that you start seeing widespread mutinies or just a drastic drop in morale in 1917 and 1918, there is another factor in the equation, and that is what happened in Russia. During early 1917, one of the reasons that the Russian Revolution was successful was because the army gave up on the government, and there was a huge fear in the West that something similar might happen, even though we know today that it was never close to occurring. Our next question comes from listener Antonio. I would like to know more about the treatment of POWs, specifically how different were the officer's status compared to the ordinary foot soldier. 
So I'm going to give a brief answer on this question, but much like the question earlier, I'm looking to do a full episode on this topic next year, so you can expect a much more detailed answer at some point in the future. Generally, the treatment of prisoners varied based on three key factors. The army that the prisoner came from, who took them prisoner, and then the economic situation within the country where they were held. I'm going to use prisoners taken by the German army as an example. As the war progressed, food became harder to come by in Germany, and this reduced the amount of food and the quality of that food that was provided by the Germans to their prisoners. I'm more inclined to give the Germans the benefit of the doubt around this specific breach of international law. After all, people were literally starving all over the country. This is where the first factor, where the prisoner came from, could have a drastic effect on their life in the prison camps. The biggest reason for this was around mail and parcels from home. The Germans allowed parcels from home to enter the camps. This meant that a British family could sustain their family member on food from home for the entire duration of the war, and some of them did. There were stories of British prisoners at times eating better than the prison guards due to the parcels from home. There were also millions of Red Cross parcels sent to the prisoners all around the world that contained food and played a critical role in feeding prisoners. However, some countries did not send nearly as much food to the camps, so if you were a Russian or Italian, you might be out of luck when it came to food. In terms of the difference in treatment between officers and men, the officers definitely had it better, at least in Germany. The Germans constructed different camps for the officers and enlisted men. The officers' camps were generally built around pre-existing buildings, so like real houses, while those of the men were generally tents or shoddily constructed housing. The officers were also exempt from work details, of which the enlisted men were heavily used. They also had better food and more of it. All these details varied greatly around the world, though. Uh, every country sort of handled prisoners differently, and I will try to dive into more detail about those situations in that later episode. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Our next question comes from listener Julian. 
He says, twice when speaking about generals' careers, you mentioned that it was a challenge to be a Catholic in France when trying to move up the ladder. Why is that? Especially since the majority of the population was still Catholic back then. So the root of those statements is in the Dreyfus Affair, which was a political scandal in France that involved the wrongful imprisonment of Alfred Dreyfus on the charge of treason. He would be imprisoned for 12 years before being eventually exonerated of all charges. This scandal would split the country in two and cause the two factions to have some pretty uh, heated disagreements. The French Catholics would get caught up in these arguments like everyone else and would eventually fall on the side that would not find itself in control of the new government and army. And in fact, for many leaders of France, being Catholic would be seen as a negative. One of the outcomes of this affair would be the introduction of a separation of church and state in France in 1905, a law introduced and pushed for by Clemenceau, who was staunchly anti-Catholic. So if you want a much deeper dive into the Dreyfus Affair, I highly, highly, highly recommend the Land of Desire podcast, which covered it in six episodes starting in episode eight. The host, Diana, does a fantastic job covering the Dreyfus Affair and how it changed French society, and her French pronunciation is way better than mine. Also, the Land of Desire is a... Also, the Land of Desire is a French history podcast. So something like the Dreyfus Affair that has such wide-ranging effects on a variety of things in French society is right up its alley. Our next question comes from listener James. Could you tell us a little about Portugal's involvement in the war? Why did so many small and seemingly irrelevant nations choose to declare war on the central powers late in the war? So, Portugal is something of a special case when it comes to joining the war because Germany actually declared war on Portugal, not the other way around, which is the case with many of these seemingly ancillary countries that joined the Allies near the end of the war. The biggest reason that Portugal got involved with the war was due to its colonies in Africa. To put it simply, Portugal needed to be friends with the British for its colonies to be able to exist. And therefore, when the war broke out, the country was far more likely to work with the British, and the British work with the Portuguese. This would mean that the Portuguese would not allow food or other goods to cross the border between its colonies and German colonies, and it meant that the British would help Portugal to send troops to Africa to guard its borders, going so far as to provide British ships for the purpose. In early 1916, the British asked the Portuguese government to intern some German ships in Lisbon, and so they did. And then the Germans got angry and declared war. As I said, though, Portugal was something of an exception, and its path to the war almost makes sense, since it was based primarily around the colonial situation in Africa. However, there were many countries that joined the war near the end, especially after the United States joined in the conflict, that are a bit more difficult to determine their reason for. The number one answer generally comes down to the countries just wanting to be part of the winning team. Just being present on the Allied side during the peace talks, whenever they happened, was a way for countries to improve their international prestige. A great example of this is China, who joined the war in the hopes that it would give them greater power in Asia, or, or any power at all, really. And they hoped that this would allow them to have a bit more say in affairs in the Far East, which Japan was already heavily in control of. For the Chinese, this plan would fail completely, but for many other countries that joined late in the war, they would at least feel like they gained something because they got to send delegates to Paris to sort of, you know, interact with all these high statesmen. Our next question comes from listener Daniel. 
So the Versailles Treaty, it is often said that no country was really happy with it, but I wonder what Serbia thought. While Serbia versus Austria-Hungary was on the surface, the cause of the whole war, eh, Serbia suffered terribly during the conflict. I would have thought that they would have been chuffed with the final outcome. Was this the case? Was there any thought at the time that the treaty was actually rewarding what could be argued as the worst terrorist act of all time, which was uh, the Black Hand, uh, you know, assassinating Franz Ferdinand, possibly at, with the support of Serbia? So Daniel is correct in stating that the Versailles Treaty was a giant set of compromises that very few people were completely happy with. Serbia was one of those countries, but they still got most of what they wanted, just not all of it. A key objective for Serbia in the post-war settlement was the creation of Greater Serbia, or a Yugoslavia, which is exactly what they got. Their unhappiness came from the fact that they did not get all the territory that they wanted, and it was because of these bits of territory that they left Paris at least a little unhappy. However, looking back, they got one of the best deals out of the whole conference, because they enjoyed the complete backing of many of the major players in Paris. Wilson, the French, Lloyd George, all backed the creation of Yugoslavia and protected it from territorial ambitions from the Italians. Even going so far as to refuse to honor some pieces of the Treaty of London, which had brought the Italians into the war in the first place. As for the second part of the question about Serbia and the Black Hand, the terrorist organization, from what I have read, there was never really much thought to if Serbia had played a role in starting the war. To this day, that story is debated, and at the time, the story was, from an Allied perspective, a fabrication created and spread by Austro-Hungarian propaganda. Serbia, from the very beginning, had been cast in the role of the victim of Austro-Hungarian imperialism, and so that was the story told at Versailles. Whether or not that story was correct didn't matter. And in fact, it was most likely actively avoided, any questioning of that story by the Allied countries, because questioning it would have been questioning the reason for the war in the first place. Our second to last question comes from listener Philip. Why did the Allies require the Ottoman Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire to be dissolved and leave Germany intact, for the most part? So I want to lead off this answer by saying that there were discussions, mainly led by the French, of course, around the idea that Germany should be broken up into smaller units after the war, maybe even equivalent to what it had been before unification after the Franco-Prussian War. These arguments never really gained much traction, but they were there. The key reason that Germany, for the most part, stayed together, and its allies in Austria-Hungary and the Ottoman Empire were torn apart, was due to promises made by the allies to other countries and to groups within those empires, and then due to the actions of those groups within those countries after the war. In terms of promises to other countries, large swaths of both empires were promised to those who came into the war at various points. Serbia, Italy, Russia, Romania were all going to get chunks of Austria-Hungary. Italy, Britain, France, and Russia were all going to get parts of the Ottoman Empire. At the same time, there were never promises of large pieces of Germany, other than, of course, Alsace-Lorraine, which the French would say was actually part of France and not Germany to begin with. At the same time, there were important conversations and deals made with groups within the empires. Czechs, Poles, Slavs, Arabs, and Jews were all groups that the Allies made promises to during the war in return for their assistance and support. All of the groups wanted their own countries, some from territory from Austria-Hungary, some from the Ottomans. In all of those cases, they were given that territory by the Allies. 
and many had already taken that territory when the war ended, either with or without permission. For example, by the time that the Allies officially recognized Poland, Czechoslovakia, and Yugoslavia, those countries had already taken territory and formed governments. The Allies were mostly just rubber-stamping what had happened, and then mediating border disagreements between the new countries. I can't help but feel that both empires were doomed from the start, just due to the divisions within those empires. Germany was pretty united in being German. Even, in, even if in 1918 they sometimes violently disagreed about what precisely that meant. Our last question today comes from longtime listener, Melissa. She says, what battle of the war was the most difficult to research that had the least amount of information available? What was the most difficult to research that had a lot of information available? Yes, I have saved this easy question for the last one. The hardest topics have always been things outside of Western Europe, especially actions that are outside of some big tentpole battles like maybe Tannenberg or the Brusilov Offensive, or outside even the Eastern Front like the actions in Central Asia. For example, finding sources on what happened in the Caucasus has been very challenging. It's one of the few times over the years that I've been reliant on non-academic sources. I think for some of the 1915 fighting, I ended up literally just trusting a random website that had been built off of translated Ukrainian, uh, of Turkish and Russian histories. I cross-checked it as much as I could, but there was a limit to that. Another problem with these parts of the war is that sometimes there is a wide range of sources available, none of which I can read, because I only read English. This has been a big problem for me when researching for some 2019 episodes about Eastern Europe. If I could download a bunch of Eastern European languages into my brain, I think those episodes would be a lot better. There are a lot of first-hand accounts that have never made it out of their native Polish, Russian, or Ukrainian, or other languages. So if you are young, and you are listening to this podcast, and you want to pursue a career in history, or you just like history a lot, don't make my mistake learn a foreign language, or several. I cannot tell you how many times over the last four years I would have killed to know French or German or Russian or some other language. The most difficult events that have a lot of information available are always a challenge due to the just sheer number of pages that are out there. I always go back to the Battle of the Somme as an example for this. There are entire books written just about the first day of fighting, entire books, hundreds of pages, thousands of pages. I'm incredibly grateful to those historians. Their attention to detail and their collation of sources has it's completely invaluable to our understanding of history. But boy, are those books more detailed than I need. This actually holds true for a lot of the British fighting on the Western Front. It's quite understandable. It's a popular topic, and many writers want to take their own stab at telling the story of the Somme, or Passchendaele, or wherever the British were fighting. But often, they're pretty derivative works of other works, and they go into such detail that it's hard for me to use their sources on the podcast. I try to stay at a pretty high level for most actions, rarely talking about anything below a division, but some books are detailing it down to regiments, and that almost ends up being more confusing to me, especially when I have the time constraints that I'm under. But I do want to reiterate that I'm glad those books are out there, and I know they are valuable, just not for me when it comes to doing research for this specific podcast project, just because of the very specific sort of mix of detail and not detail that we go into here. So there it is, another Q&A episode in the books. I hope you have enjoyed this episode and the last two episodes, which have been Patreon preview episodes. 
It has given me invaluable time when it comes to trying to get my head around the next series of episodes, which will be our largest of the entire podcast, on the negotiations at the Paris Peace Conference, which would result in the Treaty of Versailles. I hope everyone is ready for that long and winding road, because it will start next episode. I pick on dear.